Well, one more time, good morning. We're really, really glad that you're here for the fourth and final week of the Mind series. This has been a fun series for me to talk with you about because it gets to the heart, to the core of what we're all about. Today, I'm going to be talking about money. So if you're our guest today, you picked a great day to be here. Let me, in all seriousness, you did pick a great day to be here because you're going to hear what is our heart about a subject that is so well riddled with emotion. It has so many complicated pieces as you look at any individual and they think about their experience, they think about what they've heard, what they've seen on television, and they consider church and money. So we've been rallying around a very basic concept that I want to catch you up on in case you haven't been here. By the way, if you're not here one Sunday and you want to see what we're doing, you can always jump online at fourcornerschurch.com and watch the messages. By about Wednesday of every week, they're posted. So here's our big overarching concept over the last couple of weeks. We are, God calls us, stewards. Stewards. And what this means is that the whole world belongs to God. David, who killed Goliath with a stone and a sling, he wrote the book of Psalms, largely most of it anyway, and he wrote in the book of Psalms that, Lord, the earth is yours and everything in it, all the fullness thereof, everything belongs to you. And yet God set up the world way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 so that he would give us, God would give us, think about this, God would give us the ability to manage his stuff. He owns it all, but he would look at each of us and say, I'm going to give you a portion of what I own and I want you to manage it for me. The idea of somebody managing somebody else's stuff in the Bible was not foreign to the people originally that the Bible was written to. It, it makes sense to them. Often very wealthy people would have somebody who managed their stuff for them. And those people who managed their stuff, they were called stewards. And this is what God's word calls us. We are managers of God's stuff. So what stuff belongs to God? Well, all of it. What that means is the cattle on a thousand hills. The Bible describes it that way. All the stuff under the hills. It, it, it means literally, if you want to go kind of big picture, it means the very air that we breathe belongs to God. We didn't do anything to create that ourselves. We have no uh, responsibility in that privilege. It was just gifted to us, the life that we have. One of the reasons I love Child Dedication Sundays is we're reminded just how privileged we are as a congregation, that we had as a congregation very little to do with these children coming into the world. I mean, those moms and dads did, and God did by his divine touch. And yet God has said to us as a congregation, what will you do with what belongs to me? And so as a church, we nurture, along with parents, that spiritual development. We come alongside them. It's just part of our role of being a steward. God's gifted me with a marriage. For the most part, it's a pretty good one. I, I think I'm going to keep her. And so what God says to me is, Ben, it's ultimately mine, everything you have. What are you going to do with that marriage? God has put potential in each one of us, potential for all kinds of things. I mean, potential to have unbelievably hilarious moments in life. Just funny, funny stuff. My boys had one yesterday. We were coming back from a little car ride. It was hot. I said to the boys, jump in the car. Let's take a ride. We went out, went out to eat. On the way home, I was being just a little bit lead-footed. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this or not. And as I came uh, down the hill on 275, there was a guy in a white vehicle that had lights on it. I don't see many of them. And uh, as I passed, he does one of these. I knew I was busted right then. There was no getting out of it, but I'm going to try anyway. So I pull over very quickly, hoping that he would see how quickly I was to obey his divine authority, obviously. Um, 
And so, so I pull over, and he walks up, not to my door, but to my wife's, I'm not sure, which threw me a bit because I had a whole thing planned. And he walks up, and he says, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? Now, at this point, I have an integrity check to make. I do know why he pulled me over. I was doing over 80 miles an hour in a 65. That's not good. That's not good. So I said, I suppose it's because I was going a little fast. At this point, here's where the hilarity begins, I hear a chuckle in the back seat. Now, were I my father, I would just reach back and divinely God would judge my, uh, guide my hand to slap each of them in progression in the face. I didn't do that. And he says, I'm going to give you a ticket today. And at that point, I mumbled something like, is there any way I could talk you out of that? And I could tell by the look there was no way. But hey, I don't give up so easy. So I thought, well, I'll just try something else. So I said something to him about not fully understanding the car and not really having the rhythms down yet. And inching upwards in speed. He didn't buy it. So I, I, got, I got a total ticket. And as he walked away, my boys started laughing. They said, Dad, you're the dumbest guy in the world. You knew he was going to give you a ticket and you still try to get out. God gives us unbelievable, hilarious moments. He gives us unbelievable, sobering moments. I mean, we're thinking about Memorial Day. And you thought about this? We live in an amazing country. And I know it's really popular right now to beat up on our politicians. It's really popular to beat up on all kinds of things in our culture. And yet, as a whole, God has blessed this country with unbelievable, well, I don't know of a better word than to just say favor. We've been given freedoms that this world throughout its history has never seen before. It's a pretty spectacular thing. And there are men and women represented by people in this room who have served over time and are currently serving to protect that freedom. And God looks at us and says, look, all that idea of freedom is mine. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the life I give you? And there's one particular part of our lives that is shielded in often mystery, emotion, anguish, conflict, challenge, that God looks at us like he does with every area, and he says, what are you, my stewards, going to do with this portion of the life that I give you? And it's the category of money. Now, before I get going, I want to blow a hole in two ideas that I think often run just under the surface in people's minds, kind of like a, a backtrack that plays every time the idea of church and money comes up. And it's the idea of really, what do you want from us? What do you want from us? Let, let me make something perfectly clear. Of course, churches need money to operate. That's just the way God has designed things. And that's not a foreign idea. That's not an anti-biblical idea. It's not even a bad idea. It's just the idea. All the way back in the Old Testament, that's the way God set it up. But what I want from you is not the point. I want two big things for you all the way through this series, which is why we're talking about the idea of mine. Is it mine? Is it God's? Is it God's on loan to me? What am I going to do with it? And here are the two big ideas. The first big idea is freedom. I want every single person in this church to be free when it comes to money. And I know this isn't the case. Please don't raise your hand here over the next few minutes, all right? But I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, don't raise your hand. Right now, I have a financial challenge in front of me. Like, it's a real deal. It's a real deal. There would be a lot of hands going up. And if you don't raise your hand right now, I bet we wouldn't have to go back too far in your history where you would say, I know what it is to have a real financial challenge in my family, in my personal life, where my obligations seem to outpace my income. I, I bet there are a lot of people. The truth is, most of us at some point in our life, only the rarest exception, most of us in our life feel a certain amount of financial crunch. 
And so God, knowing how important and what potential this subject has to put chains around people and bind people and get them so focused on what's in front of them that they forget the larger picture of all that God has blessed us with and the grand potential that exists in each of us. Because God understood that potential for money to be so all-encompassing and burdensome, what he did was he filled his book, the Bible, with powerful teachings that bring freedom to us. And so around here in this church, we partner with people to help them live the free life as it relates to money that God wanted. And we teach some very simple principles about making sure that your debt doesn't get so far out of hand that you can't continue to do life and enjoy having your needs met and some of your wants met. Keeping debt. You know where we got that idea? Because we're amazing financial planners? No, although we have some of those. We get that right from God's word. The Bible says that the person who borrows becomes, if they're not careful, slave to the lender. And so we just teach that principle. And we have people who, many of them like you, you might be sitting near one, who would say, I haven't really done well with that. I've let my desire for stuff outpace my ability to pay for it. And so they, they, ride, they, 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 they you know, increase their credit card um, you know, expenses, and they, 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 they continue to purchase. And then when they hit a limit, they ask for more credit and then they maybe juggle two or three credit cards using one to pay off another, and the whole thing begins to spark. We have seen incredible progress as people have moved away from that kind of bondage to freedom as they followed, here's the deal, here's the point, as they followed God's teaching in the Bible. Yeah. The Bible talks a lot about, for instance, work ethic. It's a powerful subject in our culture. I think if there was ever a time in our grand uh, you know, democracy that we needed to have the revival of the discussion of work ethic, it's mine. Now, I'm not trying to reveal any political cards or anything, but I know that for a lot of us, we know people who simply don't want to work, right? We know their story. I'm not talking about like some casting some shadow over other people, or they don't want to work in the jobs that are available. They're holding out for something better. And to some degree, that makes sense. But the Bible talks a lot about work ethic and the joy, not the drudgery, but the joy that work can bring us, the satisfaction that it can bring us. See, I want people in this church to have freedom as they think about the way they do their lives, even down to drudgery kinds of issues potentially like work, freedom. But there's another big concept. There's another big concept. And this is the one where I think that most people don't ever associate church and money. It's the idea of joy. The Bible gives us this overwhelming teaching. It's all the way through the pages of the Bible. Almost every story in the Bible, you can find this, that what God is really trying to do with his creation, the ones he looked at and said, all of it's mine, I'm going to lend some of it to you. The air, I'm going to lend it to you. Uh, the creation, I'm going to lend it to you. Babies, I'm going to lend them to you for you to care. They belong to me. Your very life, the potential, I'm going to lend it to you, but it belongs to me. All the way through the stories of the Bible, as God is interacting with humanity, there's this overarching idea that God wants us to enjoy the life that he's given us. To actually find freedom and pleasure in the fact that it doesn't belong to us, and yet we were given an incredible responsibility and privilege to manage what did belong to him. And we would take joy in that, that we would have our needs met and some of our wants met. And in that, we would find great joy. And beyond just having our needs and some of our wants met, here's where it really gets interesting. We would take what he's blessed us with 
we didn't deserve, we didn't own, we didn't fully earn. We would take that and we would leverage that stuff to make huge impact on a scale that really matters. And that for all of us, men and women, even children can understand this, we would take great joy, pleasure. I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about a joy deep within. We would take significant joy in the difference, in the impact we could make, not with what we earned, but with what was loaned to us. Freedom and joy. This is, these are two ideas that God wants in every area of your life. He wants this in your marriage. So a few weeks ago when we did the marriage series, Underneath all of the teaching, underneath all of the change, underneath all of the next steps were two big ideas. God wants freedom and joy in your marriage. And as we talked about that, some of you began to get a picture of what that might look like and some of the changes you needed to make. When we talk about your spiritual life, the image that we have given us in the scripture of us before we begin a relationship with Jesus, before we put our faith and trust in him, before he becomes our savior and Lord. The image is, is that we're bound, that we're stifled, that we're confined, that we're not living joy and freedom. We're living bondage and sadness. And yet Jesus comes to us through the pages of the Bible and through churches like this, and we hear his words fresh and anew, spoken in our language, in our time. Come to me, all you who are, now catch this, weary and heavy laden, all of you who are burdened down, and I'll give you rest from those burdens, very close to our idea of freedom. I'll lift you up. One place, my, we sing a little bit about it today, but Jesus is the lifter of our heads. When we sing, I'll lift my eyes up, it's not simply I'm looking up, but my countenance is changed. I'm not walking around defeated in life, but you are the lifter of my head. I lift my eyes up to you and it changes everything. Freedom and joy. And this is where my pastoral heart kicks in. And I want to, I want to like have a personal conversation with all of you over coffee, one-on-one -on -one where I say, don't you realize that when we talk about church and money, it isn't what we want from you. It's what we want for you. For the very same God that brings freedom and joy to you spiritually wants to bring that to you in your money. And the very same God that wants to lift your marriage and bring freedom and joy there wants to bring freedom and joy to your money. The very same God that wants to be a part of your parenting as we pray for wisdom to guide and direct these precious souls that are on loan to us. The very God that wants us to have freedom and joy in that and not be encumbered by our family histories and not repeat generational dysfunction. He wants us to be free. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to enjoy the entire... He wants to bring that same process to our money. And yet, this subject seems to be just riddled with goofiness. And then you add to it the very sobering and sad reality that most of us have some experience, at least knowledge of, places where churches and money didn't go right. So I asked last week, a little bit of honesty here, I asked last week, how many of you would say that you have a little bit of emotional baggage when it comes to the subject of churches and money? And you know, some 30 of us in the room said that. So just kind of as a sampling, by no means scientific, I made a few phone calls, wrote a few emails, and chatted with a couple of people and discovered something that was a little bit surprising to me is it is probably true that in this room some of us have been taken advantage of by people who preyed on our generous hearts. That probably happened to a couple of us. But most of us 
we're one or two steps removed who have this emotional baggage from any actual personal experience of the actual being taken advantage of. In other words, somebody close to us or we heard about or there were rumors of or we even knew, but it really wasn't our thing, but we were emotionally involved with people that were. And so we borrowed that pain and that difficulty. into. Here's what I've discovered. Most churches, friends, now you, you may disagree with me, but most churches that I know of, there are certainly exceptions. They always make the news, it seems like. Most churches and their leaders and their volunteers who make things happen aren't in it for the money. I mean, we're not. And yet sometimes I think that because this money thing is so emotional, and maybe because we've heard a few stories, and because the ones that go national, they're big and the scale is grand, sometimes just the very bringing up of the subject of church and money causes some people to go, ugh, I knew it deep down, all they want is my money. That simply isn't true for most churches. I know it's certainly not true here. When this staff gets together and we talk about money, there are two big ideas we have in mind. We want our people to be free. We want them to have joy. So we want them on one side to experience. And the other thing we think about very practically, which brings me to the core of what we're going to talk about, is we think about what would happen if we were all free and had joy and we leveraged some of what God has given us for the benefit of the kingdom of God on this earth. What if we were all free and had joy Number one. And then number two, what if we leveraged some of what God blessed us with in order to see God's work in this world grow? What difference would it make in our community? What difference would it make in our church? What difference would it make to our children that were standing on this stage who have no idea that they're being brought into? What difference would it make if this group of people called Four Corners Church leveraged some of what God blessed them with for the growth of God's kingdom in this world? And we did it with freedom, and we did it with joy. Not begrudgingly, cheerfully. Not being constrained or guilted, but because we chose for ourselves. And so last week I asked you a very basic question that's going to be our jumping off point. What do you want your spiritual legacy to be as it relates to your money? What do you want to do with the money that God's blessed you with? Do you just want to survive? And some of you, you might be pressured under, and you're thinking, I just like to survive. Hey, we get that. But I don't think that's all God has for you. Do you just want to enjoy it yourself? Like, like that's like maybe a step up of survival. Like, I just want to, like, you know, play with my toys. I want new and bigger and better toys. And I get that. I've been there. I see that in my children. As a parent, one of my jobs is to kind of drive that foolishness out of them so that they start thinking bigger picture issues. They start dreaming bigger dreams, and they don't always go for the short, immediate you know, joy that comes from spending their money on themselves. But they go for a bigger picture. Or do you want to use some of what God's blessed you with to make an eternal difference? Is that what you want? And if you do, how are you going to get there? So there are two things I want you to know. Number one, you do not have to give to Four Corners Church to be a part of Four Corners Church. Invariably, when a minister does a series like this, and when I end with a message like this, somebody goes away saying, I knew it, all they want is our money. Mm -mm. The history of this church has been that people who don't give a dime can come and be a part and serve, take their time, figure it out, have their hearts softened, we pray, experience the ministry and community, and over time decide if they want to make an investment in this place or not. 
And we don't make people sign on the dotted line, here's the amount of the budget you have to make. We do all of that by faith. And I got to tell you, it stretches my faith to not know what exactly is going to come in each year, but then sometime around September start making a budget for the next year, thinking that the best we have is the good hearts and the willing obedience of people as they individually follow Jesus in this place. There is no grand donor that underwrites everything, and then if we get it in, we hit it. There is no, uh, there's no like, insurance policy that comes in every year as people you know, kind of go to sleep for a long time and leave us their... It doesn't happen. We, we, don't, we don't have that kind of thing. Each year, people decide, this is what I want to do with my money, and they give. So what we did is we decided that there were probably enough people in our church who would be willing to carry the load while the rest of us decided what we were going to do and if we were going to grow in God grow spiritually and begin to deal biblically with our money. So there's always a gap. You would be surprised. It would be very unhealthy, but you'd be surprised to know what the people around you give. Of the about 800 people this year who have taken a next bold step, that is, at some level, they connected with what we were talking about. Only just under 500 of them has ever given anything. So you know, what, 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 it, what is the percentage of them? Just over 50% have ever even given a single penny in a recordable way to this church. Sometimes there's cash. Our cash offerings each week, somewhere around three to 400 bucks. So it's not a lot of people dropping in cash that aren't getting recorded for their tax receipt at the end of the year. What that means is a lot of people are carrying and some people are kind of in that wait mode. We say, fine, that's awesome. We've always had people who were willing to carry the weight for you to catch up with what God wants for your life. We do that in prayer. So this morning when I came in, there was a gentleman walking around. I'm going to embarrass him. Marvin, where are you? Are you in here? Mar- Marvin Solanke. And he was walking around. He's on the tech team, and his role is prayer leader. So in an accountable way, he prays, as opposed to a bunch of you who just pray regularly. That's awesome. But in an accountable way, he joined a team, and he said, I'm going to champion the prayer responsibility for all the things that happen in this room as it relates to tech and production on the stage. So he walks around the room and he in a direct way prays because he knows that a lot of people that come to this room haven't prayed and they haven't said this, God, I'm going to church today. Would you make my heart open? Would you make my mind receptive? And would you teach me Holy Spirit? He knows that many of us in this room haven't done that. So he prays for all of us that very thing. We have people in this church who carry the load financially for the rest of us who don't want to, who won't, who can't for whatever reason. And that's awesome. And we take great joy in doing that. We don't do that begrudgingly. We especially love it when the single mom with a couple kids who's struggling comes to us and says, this happens regularly, you'd be surprised. I would love to give, but I can't. I look them in the eye every time and I say, don't you dare. Don't you dare. My wife and I will kick in extra for you. I say to every one of them, just so you feel like you're a part, would you give something, like a dollar a week, $5 a month, just so that you know you're a part. We know your heart. You're good you're good. We'll cover that. We want them to have freedom and joy. And we want them to know that you don't have to give to Four Corners Church to be a part of this church. And so in kind of working through that over the last eight years or so, I've discovered four big reasons why people don't give to the church that they say they love. Now, the first one that I'm going to talk to you about in just a second, I can't do anything about this other than preach God's word, try to make it clear and compelling. But the first thing we're going to talk about is really the kind of thing that only the Holy Spirit can change. And I know something. This breaks my heart as a pastor. That Sometimes people come to this room and they're not open to the Holy Spirit's work. 
And so we preach, we teach, we do the best we can. I saw this hardcore a couple of years ago when we were in the middle of a marriage series and I gave an entire message on why you should not have an affair. Why you should not have an affair. There's the entire 40 minutes, 48 minutes. Why you should not, 52 minutes. Why you should not have an affair. And with great passion and with all the courage I could muster, I looked at all the men and women in the eyes best as I could and I said, don't you dare do it. This is what's going to happen. And somebody that had been with us almost from the very beginning of the church, and just a matter of six months, from the time he sat in the room and heard that series, that message, a relationship that was probably already bordering emotionally on inappropriate slipped over into being physically inappropriate. And all the destructive things that I had talked about that don't bring freedom and joy began to kick in in his life. And I remember thinking, and this is just like one of those weird God things where I think God gave me the sense of the burden of what a church does. I remember thinking back months ago when I preached a sermon, I remember making eye contact with him and him nodding along and thinking, how is it? And then I don't want to beat him up too much because I think of myself, how is it I was overly, regularly, consistently confronted with what God wanted me to do? And I, like him, like many of us in this room do, I just basically said, no, that's not for me. So the first reason why people don't give to the church they say they love, honestly, is just disobedience. Now, this is the person who knows but won't. This is not the person who knows and can't. We've already covered that. This is the person who doesn't want to make any adjustments in order to contribute to the church they say they love. So on the outside, here's the classic person. They know the biblical answers. They go to small group, and they can say all the right stuff. They can talk most of us under the table. They know scriptures. They know principles. And yet, while they're often pointing the finger at other things that all of us should do and nodding their head in agreement secretly, and they would be terrified if you ever found out, they're walking in active disobedience in an area of life where they know better. This breaks pastors' hearts. Not because we need your money, but because that is the very place where you are not experiencing freedom and joy. And if this thing doesn't turn, eventually what we've discovered is people leave churches. They say they leave over other stuff, but often it is an unwillingness to buy in and they feel separated. It creates a sense of guilt. And every time they come into a corporate setting, they feel disconnected. They blame often the church, but really it's an unwillingness to come with an open heart and say, God, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to hear, would you make me open and receptive? And Holy Spirit, wherever you lead me, I'll follow. And I'll begin to take a step today in the right direction. I may not go the entire distance, but today I'll leave taking a step wherever you guide. I can't do anything about disobedience. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when one of our high school students who have sat in a high school series where we came through an entire thing of guardrails and we talked about why it is to not just avoid certain behaviors, but to put guardrails in place so that you don't get close to those behaviors. Because those behaviors often have irrevocable challenges attached to them. So we challenge them. When it comes to alcohol, you know, the law says 21. Your parents may let you a little bit more. But bottom line is most all of us should just avoid it until we are significantly into our adult life. Because almost always alcohol is associated with poor choices. We said to them, build guardrails. Don't go there. Because we want you to have freedom and joy. And we know many of them will ignore us. You can't do anything about disobedience. Foolishness, the Bible says, abounds in the heart of a child. It also abounds in the heart of adults. Let me just say this. At least it abounds in this one, this adult. Here, here's a second reason. And this one where, is where I really lean in as a pastor. It's fear. 
Fear is one of the reasons. Here's the bottom line is. When, when you think about church and money and what do I give and what do I have left, the enemy is amazing. The enemy of our soul is very amazing at rising up the temperature on fear. Effectively, it works like this. If you give that there, you won't have it over here. You can't afford to make a contribution like that because if you do, you're not going to have... What's going to happen if this thing happens? And so he keeps fear up and without knowing it, we begin to put our trust and our confidence and our ability to hold on to our stuff and manage the uncertainties of life as we have stuff and things and cash. Instead of what Jesus said very directly, don't put your trust in those things, put your trust in me. Here's the bottom line. We basically say this. Now think about this. Logically, we know this doesn't work. God, I can trust you with my eternal soul. I trust that the last breath I take from that moment on, you've got me, I'm in your arms, you take care of me, everything's good. But I can't trust you with this temporary thing called money here and now. And every time I think about it, fear rises. What if I lose my job? What if I don't close the deal? And so God, in just a minute, we're going to discover, gives us some very practical ways to deal with that. But fear is a big deal. If fear is the reason you can't leverage the part of the life that God gave you called money, into making an eternal difference. I'm going to tell you, the Bible isn't silent about that. My heart breaks for you because I know you're not living in freedom and I know you're not living in joy. That's not God's will for you on this subject. And so the Bible is full of stuff about the fear that comes on us, that keeps us from... And so Jesus said, the number one competitor for our hearts is money against God. That money and the love of it will crowd, the fear around it will crowd out God. He doesn't want that for us. Here's the third reason. I love this reason. It's ignorance. Some people don't give money to the church they say they love because they just don't understand it. In literally two minutes, I'm going to take that away today. All right? And then number four, no system. They want to. They understand. They've made a commitment. But they never put in place a set of behaviors to actually do what they said they wanted to do. This happens, by the way, in all areas of life. We want to have an intimate, connected friendship with our spouse. And yet we don't put in place, we make a decision to do it, we really want to do it, we mean it, we mean it, we mean it. And then we don't put in place a system to have a date night, to set aside time together, to go on that trip together, to take a ride together, to eat our meals together. We don't put a place in a system. And so the very goals we really genuinely have never come to pass because we don't put a system in place to do it. So Jesus talked a lot about this stuff. And I'm gonna blow literally in like four minutes through three major passages where Jesus talks about money, where the Bible talks to us about money. And I want to show with you just two or three key principles that I think will take shots at these four major reasons why people don't give. Right? So Luke eleven forty two. I picked this one out because it's, it's somewhat abstract, and yet it's pointed. Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees, and they were, they were very proud of what they did. And so Jesus was talking to them and saying, well, you do certain things right, but there's a whole area of life that you've forgotten. And in that conversation, Jesus mentions a subject that nobody in churches really wants to talk about. And sometimes you'll hear people say, Jesus never talked about this subject. Not true. He talks about the idea of tithing. Tithing is a a standard set where, as a general rule, the teaching is that if you're part of God's kingdom, if you're in his family, you should strive for hitting about 10% of your income contributed to the work of God around the world. Now, that's a big standard. You know, some of like, I know that in America, the average person gives 2% of their income away to anything. And in churches, it's about 3%. It's 
So this is like a major deal for a lot of folks. And yet Jesus said, look, listen, he said, woe to you Pharisees, those of you that like keep, here's what you do. Because you give God a tenth or a tithe of silly little things like mint and rue and all other kinds of herbs, let alone your money, but you neglect big things like justice and the love of God. He said, woe to you. Here's what you should have done. You should have practiced the latter, the tithing, and not left the former undone. You should have done both. To be consistent, your life should have both the things you do around money and the bigger picture stuff like love. And I brought this up because sometimes I run into the, uh, the, the average believer and they'll say things like, well, I can't give money, but I've got time. I can't give money, but I'm praying for you. I can't do... And I want to say, look, that might be true for a handful of us. But most of us have a certain amount of income we get regularly. And if we really wanted to, we could set aside a portion of it. It may not be a lot, but we could. We could set aside a portion of that if we wanted to give that to God's work. We could. You could do it in this church. You could do it around the world. It wouldn't matter. All right? And then there's a passage we're going to read very quickly in Malachi chapter 3. This is the one where like, people used to get beat up about this. But there's a powerful, power, powerful promise in this passage. For those of us that are trying to wrestle with God, what would you have me do? And our hearts are open and our minds, our minds are alert to what God would have us do. Here's, here's what Malachi 3 says. I love how it begins. I, the Lord, don't change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, that is the people of Israel, ultimately the family of God, you're not destroyed. Here's what God says. Because I don't change, you're still here. Because I am a God of grace and mercy, you're still around. And then look at what he says. And some of you can relate to this. Ever since the time of your ancestors, so way back when, you've turned away from my decrees and you haven't kept them. This is God's talking. I could be mad, but because I don't change, I haven't destroyed you for this. Return to me and I'll return to you, he says. Return to me and I'll do my stuff, walk in my way, embrace my wisdom, soften your heart, open your mind, return to me and I'll return to you. But you ask, how are we to return? And then verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God, he says? And yet, he's talking to the children of Israel, you robbed me. Well, how, how, God, did we rob you? How are we robbing you? And then in tithes and in your offerings, in the way you give. And so then God says to this nation, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. And then he says, here's the antidote. Bring it all. Bring the part that, listen, I gave it all to you. I only asked for a portion back. Bring the portion back into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. In the ancient world, there was a storage of food. It was used in the offering. It wasn't what people ate. So bring it in and so that the, the temple can do its business. And then God says, and this is what I love. And this is a challenge I throw to you. Test me in this, God says. Test me. It's the only place in the Bible where God says, test me. Everywhere else it says, don't test the Lord. When it comes to money, God says, test me. See if it doesn't work. See if I'll not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there'll not be room enough to store it. And then he says, I'll prevent the pests in the agricultural society. I'll prevent the pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. And then all the nations will call you blessed. We are the richest nation in the world. In all of history. And we give 2 to 3% of our income away. And it's not because most of us are on the edge of starvation. For the first time in human history, there is an epidemic of significant proportion at work in our country. It's called obesity. And I'm guilty. I went to the doctor and he said, Ben, you're bordering on obesity. And I thought, well, can I get a new doctor? never been so. It's never been so. 
And it's not because we don't have enough. It's because we have too much and we can't figure out how to get all that food into such a small space. And yet, as a nation, it's 2 to 4% we give away. I get why. Because we need our stuff, don't we? Then the, all the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a, and I love this, a delightful land. I don't know that I can control the country. But I tell you, at my house, I want my house to be a delightful house. I want freedom and joy in this area for me. Now, the last passage I'm going to show you is just filled with powerful information. This is going to set a lot of you free in this subject. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul was going around the churches that he had established because there was some need in another church. They were poor. They weren't making it. And Paul said, these are our brothers and sisters. We need to help them out. And we're barely making it by over here, so we need to step up. If we're going to do what God, we need to step up. So he writes them a letter in 1 Corinthians, and he says, here's how, you're going to, here's how we're going to deal with the offering. So in 1 Corinthians 16.1, here's how it begins. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, for the work of God. So when you think about this, this answers the question what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is your giving to God's work, the collection that, that people were rallying around. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, this is the what, and then he tells us how. On the first day of every week, now this was interesting because the first day of the week was the day after you got paid. You got paid on the last day of the week for the work you had worked, for the work you had accomplished. And so on the first day of the week, you had a pocket full of money from the week's work. So on the first day of the week, before your week rolls out, that's when it's supposed to happen. Regularly, each time you get paid. And one place in the Bible says, when you have increased, so as you get money, then I don't get any money. Guess what? You're exempt. That's what the Bible would say. If you don't get money, you're exempt. You don't have any increase, you're exempt. If you have any increase at all, you're not exempt if you're a follower of Jesus. That's the clear implication here. So on the first day of the week, the week after, you know, the day after you get paid, each one of you, the next verse, the next line says, each one of you, on the first day of the week, each one of you. Now in the Greek, each one of you means each one of you. It's really not all that complicated for those of us. And yet Jesus would talk like this, and he'd look at his crowd, and he'd say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, knowing that sometimes, even though it was as clear as could be, it didn't penetrate. Somebody would leave the room, well, I hope they heard that. (laughs) He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So how much do you give in an amount keeping with your income? Proportional, in an amount keeping with your income. You make a lot, you give more. You make less, you give less. So this ties it directly to the Old Testament practice of the tithe. That's somewhat of a percentage you set. And you say, God, this is my goal. This is what I offer freely to you. I offer it cheerfully. This is what I want to do. You've given me all of it. I want to give a portion back to your work. I want to cover people that aren't there yet. I want to create a certain amount of margin so that your work can continue. This is what I'm going to do in proportion to your income. Each of you should set aside a sum of money and keep it with your income, saving it up so that when I come. So where do you, what do you do? You hold it. In our purposes, you, you, know, you hold it here through the week so that when you come to the church where the place is happening, you can give it. Paul says, so that when I come, I don't have to then start taking up an offering. No collections will have to be made. So why do we do this? So the needs of God can be met so that you don't spend your money before you give it. That's what a lot of us do. We have great intentions. And the truth of the matter is, is we end up spending it and then we look back and we go, oh, I wanted to and I feel so guilty and I hope Ben doesn't make me feel bad today. So Jill and I were faced with this very dilemma. We wanted to, we knew we should, 
And we didn't have a system to continue doing what we knew we wanted to do. So we were spotty and marginal and occasional. And God calls our giving to be regular proportional. Regular proportional. Those are the two key words. Regular proportional actually helps us move forward in the goals that we have. Regular and proportional activity with my wife as my job ramps up keeps my intimacy with her connected. Regular and proportional engagement with my kids as their dynamics change keeps me as the attentive, engaged, wise, hopefully, father. Regular and proportional so that God's work could be met. The truth is, there's always going to be people in church who aren't going to do this. And they're going to go to small groups and they're going to share scripture and they're going to pray better than the rest of us, at least by their words. And there's going to be a gaping hole of disobedience in their life. That's not going away. And God's work is suffering because of that. Local churches suffer. 90% of churches in North America, Canada, and the United States are in decline. Part of the reason for that is we have stopped as a generation giving to God's work. Giving across the board is down for people under the age of 50. Over the age of 50, they still tend to give significantly. And in a church like us where we gear towards young people, we lean heavily on the people over 50. And we say to them, I know you don't particularly like the music, but would you please continue to be generous so that the rest of us who are not quite your age and wisdom level will have some time to grow up and be confronted with the teachings of God and can choose for ourselves to step up. So for a lot of us in the room, God's blessed us abundantly. Some of you, I've seen your families grow over the years. I've seen your incomes grow. We've celebrated and prayed with you about job things, and God has rained blessings into our lives. In fact, I doubt there's a single person in this room. Maybe there is, and if there is, I'll be glad to help you with this. But I doubt there's a single person in this room who's going to leave here wondering where their next meal is going to come from. And God says, look, out of all that I've given you, would you be willing to give back a portion to me? So around here, we, we try to take steps in the right direction, like moving forward. So why don't you grab out your Connect card and let me continue like two minutes of teaching as we take a few next steps. In one sense, this is meant to be a relatively unemotional, like unemotional, intentional decision to move forward with God. Um, ben, you don't understand how far back I am. What if instead of trying to go the whole way today, what if you took one step in the right direction? So for instance, what if, Let's take care of the big stuff first. What if next step A, you wanted to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the first time? Like, like you know you're not in active relationship with him. And yet you want to make him the Lord and the leader of your life. And you want to receive his grace. And you don't receive that by giving in an offering, being part of a church. No, no, it's free to you. And yet when he calls you to himself, he calls you to a life of freedom and joy. And in that, there are certain things he wants you to do. What if you're willing to submit to him as your forgiver and then the leader of your life who tells you what to do and you largely go along with it? If you want to do that, we want to have you check the box today as an act of your faith. We're going to pray in a moment and we're going to send you some stuff about that through the week. Or next step B, you want to get baptized and go public with your faith. You know, for me as a giver in this church, every time we do baptisms, every time we have child dedications, for me, that's my paycheck. And I, I get a real paycheck because I work here. But my heart is filled most by what I see here. I realize it's worth it. And when I tell my kids no, because we've as a family set this priority, it's worth it. It's worth it. And I hope that for my four kids, they see what's motivating us. So in those baptisms, I'm standing there half the time praying, God, oh Lord, would you let people here who are walking in active disobedience or those walking in ignorance, would God, you let this testimony of baptism speak to their hearts that an investment in what you're doing here is worth it. 
That's my prayer almost every time. All right, next step, see. I wonder if there's anybody who say, Ben, I want to give. I, I do, but I need to step up in a disciplined way. I'm going to tell you how it changed for me and Jill. I want to give in a disciplined way, so I'm signing up for online giving this week. Here's, here's what online giving does. It takes it out of my active memory. I need to remember, oh, I can't spend because I'm holding this check or I'm holding this cash. No, it takes it out of my, and it just comes out for us. And so Jill and I live our value by setting it on autopilot. It's much like we do with our calendar. We have certain dates set aside for date night. They're date night. And by calendar, we're driven to do the values we have because our life gets busy and we forget and things crowd us out. And if we don't put our priorities on a calendar, almost automate them, we don't do it. You could go home today, get online, sign up, it takes like three minutes, and you can set aside $5 a week. Average coffee is three bucks. If you buy one a day, that's 15 there's a good number of people in this church who buy more in coffee every week. They say they love their church than they give to their church. And that's just me as a, as a guy. That just doesn't make sense to me. I'm not trying to beat anybody up. But if you love your church, you could do this if this is your value. All right, next step, D. I want to give in a disciplined way. I'm not very tech savvy. So have a staff person call me and help me set up my online giving. We do this regularly for folks. We won't, you need to know how much. We'll set you up, send you a link. You go on and put in the amount and you can change it anytime you want. But then the value you have gets done in a disciplined way. So those are like steps, all right? Here's a big giant step. I'm signing up for the 90 day, days tithing challenge. Here's what we do here. We do this about once a year. We say to people, if you'll give a full 10% of your income for 90 days, starting on a specific date today, if you sign this, you know, just check the box. And at the end of 90 days, if you feel like God hasn't blessed you more, that he hasn't opened up the windows of heaven and poured into you a blessing, and without questioning you, we'll just verify that you, in fact, gave a full 10%, we'll give you your money back. God says, test us in this. We take him at his word. So if you're like, Ben, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can trust God here. I can trust him with my soul, but I can't trust him with my money. This is literally a money-back guaranteed way for you to try it. 90 days through the summer. I'm going to give my tithe, and if I don't feel on an internal subjective level, it was worth it. You let us know. You give us 30 days. We'll give you your money back. All right? Now, we normally stop right here, but I want to give two more baby steps. Next step, F. You don't have to check this. This is something you can do. All right? I want to give a first-time offering today. So when the buckets come by, just put an offering in. Maybe that's your step today. Or next step, G. I'm increasing my giving. Like, I don't know what you need to do. But I know that if we don't regularly come to God with an open heart and say, Lord, this is my heart as it relates to money. You warned me that money would crowd you out quicker than anything else. God, I haven't had a conversation with you in a long time about money. I've let all kinds of stuff, people and personalities in history. If that's you, why don't you just take a step today? All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, God, I want to thank you because I know that in many churches, if I gave a message like this, people would be furious. And yet, God, regularly from this stage, we're able to deal with the most poignant and sensitive and emotional issues of life in a straightforward way. So, God, we've regularly talked about sex. We've talked candidly about marriage. We've dealt with social issues like greed and alcohol. God, today we come to you with the number one competitor for our hearts, money. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work. God, I can only give words the Holy Spirit, would you take your words and plant them in our hearts so that each person takes a step towards obedience. 
and a step towards freedom and a step towards joy. God, whatever lies the enemy might be whispering right now, would you quiet those? God, would you arrest the devourer for the sake of your name and the sake of your work? God, rather than bringing shame and guilt, oh God of grace, would you wash us? God, I lift up those that are committing their lives to you for the very first time as Savior and Lord. We thank you for those decisions. And God, as we take steps as a congregation to make sure that your work in this city is fully funded, and we never have to ask ourselves, what can't we do because we don't have money? Thank you, Father, in advance for what you're doing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.